ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou, I'm Laura Clark, and for the latest episode of Tea with the High Commission, I'm joined by Andrew Bridgman, New Zealand's Secretary of Defence and Chief Executive of the Ministry of Defence. Prior to taking this role in July 2019, Andrew's roles included Chief Executive for the Ministry of Justice, Acting Chief Executive and DG of the Ministry of Health, and Senior Solicitor in the Ministry of Māori Development. Andrew's led change management programs in large complex departments and has been responsible for developing justice policy and advice to ministers on matters relating to criminal justice and crime prevention, constitutional law, human rights and public and commercial law. So kia ora, Andrew. No mai haere mai. Thank you very much for joining us today. Kia ora, Laura. And look, it's, um, I'm delighted to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, can I start, I think, with a bit about your, your motivation and your career to date, Andrew? So you've held lots of roles across the public sector. And can I ask then, what is it that motivates you about that work? And what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? That's a, um, that's a good question. And uh, I have held a number of roles in the public service. When I first entered the public service, I, I sort of really looked at it through the lens of a a, a conglomerate. And so I never really thought about it through one department lens. I saw it as a, a huge organisation um, working in the endeavour of public policy and public good. And, and in that sense, that, you know, I started at the um, Ministry of Māori Affairs because I thought they were fascinating issues, and they are. And then from there on, I really just, um, as opportunities arose, um, I thought to myself, would they be challenging? Would they be interesting? Would I be working with interesting people? Uh, and that's why, you know, it led me to then places like justice, health, economic development, uh, and then ultimately where I am today in defence. Fantastic. And as the, you know, as Secretary of Defence, you are the principal civilian advisor to the government on all defence matters. So what would you say is the most rewarding part of that role? The most rewarding part is the people that I work with. It's a, it's it's the ministry is a small team. We're about um, about 160 people. Um, they're really professional. They're very very motivated, um, and they do some really impressive work, uh, ranging from policy work on advising the government about what our strategic sort of security and defence challenges are. Uh, to the other um, extreme where we, you know, we, we purchase hugely expensive and complicated uh, capability. So um, that to me is, is, is one of the highlights. And the other highlight is working with the, um, the personnel, the men and women of the New Zealand Defence Force. Um, and I was very fortunate to um, uh, see them in their deployments in Iraq and the Sinai and Qatar and Bahrain um, about 18 months ago. And I'm just really impressed with their selflessness um, and their professionalism and their adaptability. So those two things would be big highlights. There are, of course, you know, there are very, very strong connections between the UK and New Zealand across the, the board. I wonder if you can talk a bit about what the similarities are um, between the, the New Zealand and UK armed forces and also what, what some of the differences are. It is fascinating when you, um, 
when you look at the New Zealand Defence Force, because in one sense, it's a, it's a really good example of um, where, where we are similar, where the legacy issues are still there in terms of, and I mean that in a very positive sense, that the history, and also where we're different, you know, because ultimately New Zealand is a Pacific nation. So, look, I think, you know, if I look at similarities, I look at the New Zealand Defence Force and the UK um, Armed Forces, I look at the similar ranks, um, very similar titles, and probably the use of um, uh, similar terminology. You know, in, in preparing for this, um, I was informed that until 1941, the Royal New Zealand Navy was a division of the Royal Navy. You know, we've shared common experiences uh, in terms of World War One, World War Two, and deployments since then, most recently um, in Afghanistan. What I would say there is, in, in that sense, um, New Zealand and British personnel would find a lot of similarities. Where it's different, I think, is many aspects of our culture and our ethnic makeup. So, for instance, in the Navy, 21% of our personnel identify as Māori, and in the Army, 19%. And then that's reflected um, in the day-to-day uh, way that they work in terms of their incorporation of te ora Māori and te reo Māori mm. um, and, and, and some of the rituals uh, and, and uh, some of the ways that, that they operate on a day-to-day basis. So I think that would be, that would be quite new, for instance, to defence personnel coming from the UK. I'll probably finish the answering the question with most importantly, the Treaty of Waitangi, which is our founding document, is something that we always have reference to. And so, for instance, we in the Ministry of Defence at the moment are finalising our Te Reo Māori language plan, which we want uh, to strengthen and improve our understanding and application of Te Reo in our everyday work. Mm. So they, that, that's kind of how I would... Um, how I would answer that question in terms of both the similarities um, and the differences. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? And making sure uh, that the ministry is true to the Treaty of Waitangi and, and that, the, that all its um, defence forces represent, properly represent bicultural Aotearoa uh, New Zealand. For all that, for all the you know, similarities and differences, I know that there is a very rich exchange of people between, uh, between the, the UK and New Zealand um, in, in defence forces and that, that people always feel at home, whether it's, whether it's New Zealand staff going over to the UK or vice versa, there's that sense of, of being able to fit in very easily and being made to feel um, very welcome. I want to talk now about the Five Powers Defence Agreement, um, which is shortly going to be celebrating 50 years um, since it began. And, and the Five Powers Defence Agreement is made up, of course, of Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Malaysia. Um, and they will soon be doing their annual exercises off the coasts of Australia and Singapore. Could you tell us a little bit more um, about this arrangement and why it's worked so well for the countries involved? I'll sort of answer that in a few ways. Firstly, I think its success to me is about consistency to purpose. Um, so it's about being connected, um, uh, having exercises every year and being very, very consistent about that. The, uh, the key exercise, uh, Prasama Lima, is scheduled to be held in Malaysia in early October, subject to COVID-19. What we will do in contributing to that is to deploy um, our HMNZS to Kaha, 
um, in our HMNZS Aotearoa, as well as a P3 um, Orion and approximately 25 staff to fill a range of appointments um, at the exercise headquarters. The Sama Lima is one of two annual FPDA exercises to build um, capability and um, uh, 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 routine and understanding between those five powers. So I think that's kind of a very, very impressive level of engagement. Um, and as you say, um, that's been happening uh, uh, for 50 years. So that means that over that, you're kind of fostering people-to-people -people links and importantly, interoperability um, between those five nations. And I think that is the key to its, uh, to its measure of success and a mutual understanding in what is increasingly a significant region of the world. Interesting. And of course, that, that arrangement is just one of the many areas, you know, arrangements in which the UK and New Zealand um, work together. And, and we this weekend are marking Armed Forces Day, so which is the UK's day to commemorate the service of men and women in the British Armed Forces. And I wonder then, you know, we've talked about working in that five powers agreement, but of course, working bilaterally as well. What do you think are the highlights of, of UK New Zealand cooperation? Firstly, uh, look, it's an honour to be able to um, pay tribute to the service and sacrifice of the British service women and men by being involved in this podcast. So I'd like to thank you very much for that. And also, I think just uh, worth noting that our, our Minister of Defence embodies a deep history of our two nations. Um, through his ancestry, he, he represents both sides of um, the battle that we commemorated recently at Ruapeka Peka, yeah. um, both as a descendant of an officer in the 58th Regiment of the British Redcoats, as well as a descendant of a Ngāpui person who defended the power. In terms of the highlights of our, our respective nations and the defence relationships, uh, I'd refer, as I said, the two world wars and our mutual deployments. I'd refer to the way Britain always marks Anzac Day. And I want to say there on a personal note, I was really taken um, to see a photo of Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge laying a wreath at London on Anzac Day this year. And I just by chance came across that while I was flicking through some news. And I, that to me was quite poignant. And I just sort of thought, you know, that really says, says a lot. I think training, and you've mentioned that, I think it's changes. I think us, our people going to the um, staff colleges in, in England, I think that's really, really important. Um, uh, I know myself, I've, I've had uh, quite a bit of contact with Sir Stephen Lovegrove before he went off to his new role and then a very good call recently with David Williams. So I think there's, there's to me, there's a real tempo and routine of both Defence Force personnel and Ministry of Defence personnel um, uh, uh, having exchanges and engagements with uh, the UK defence system. Mm -hmm. and, and they are really, really important, both given our history together, um, what we can learn off each other, um, but also um, our kind of mutual challenges today. And so, um, Andrew, New Zealand um, Defence has got a huge range of responsibilities and also one of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world and you've got everything from you know sort of 
provide, you need to provide humanitarian assistance in the region, provide um, defense for the, for, the, for the area, but also of course, get caught up with civil emergencies. Um, and indeed some defense staff are involved in the, in the um, quarantine facilities uh, in this COVID context. So, so there's such an array of responsibilities. What do you see as the biggest challenge for New Zealand defense? That's a very big question. At, look, at the moment, absolutely no doubt, and the Minister has talked about this, that the, the key priority is COVID, uh, and we have about um, 1,200 New Zealand Defence personnel at any one time um, working uh, on the managed isolation facilities uh, throughout New Zealand. So that's a, a really big priority. I think you know the other priority uh, is around our exclusive economic zone, and it's 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 around climate change, it's around HADAR, it's around search and rescue, all of those challenges in the Pacific that that the defence force are constantly involved with, and also in cyclo season where we are assisting um, South Pacific countries when they're affected by cyclones. And then more kind of broadly, it's those geostrategic challenges that we face and that we mentioned in our 2018 um, strategic defence assessment. And that's, I think, is, is about, as a small nation, um, relying on the international rules-based order um, and therefore relying on other countries to, to work within that international rules-based order. And so... Um, when that's not occurring, paying our role in coalitions and with other like-minded countries to ensure that um, we protect our interests. Absolutely. And I think that those analysis that, you know, that's an analysis that's absolutely shared and position that's shared um, in the UK and amongst lots of other partners. And in fact, our integrated review, as you know, which is our strategic picture of the, the world up to 2030 and the UK's role in the world, um, identified two major trends in a way. So one was um, one was the sort of crisis in terms of climate and biodiversity and it set out that that addressing climate change is our top international priority. Um, and it also identified um, China's increasing power and assertiveness internationally as the most significant geopolitical factor of the 2020s. Because it does, as you say, all go back to that, making sure that um, the, the rules-based order is operating and things like freedom of navigation uh, endure. That's right. And, um, you know, we, we are intensely interested in your integrated review. Um, it's, a, it's a really comprehensive piece of work. And, you know, like you, we, we've identified climate change um, and we've identified geostrategic competition as well. We're concerned with any country that takes actions that put unnecessary pressure on the international rules-based order. And we want, you know, countries to act in unison with those rules um, because they benefit all countries. So we would encourage all countries to, uh, to engage on international issues um, in accordance with existing um, norms and rules. And, you know, the, um, uh, our relationship with China is fundamental uh, for stability in the region. And we would welcome constructive engagement with China and other countries to make sure that these norms are adhered to. Can I move on now and talk about um, military capabilities and defence 
equipment, essentially defense kit, um, and, and the link to deterrence and security. Because I think sometimes when you live in a country that's at peace and has been at peace for a long time, there's a bit of a sense of, well, why should we spend, you know, important taxpayers' money on um, ships or aircraft or other forms of, of military capability? So can you talk a little bit about that link between capability, military capability and deterrence? Yeah, look, and I think it's something that we're all kind of increasingly um, thinking about. You know, I think deterrence takes uh, many forms. The way we would probably look at it is it's about how can we play our role, for instance, in our region? How can we play our role as a constructive partner in our region so people see us as a helpful partner, people see us as an a, a, as a influencer for good? And to that extent, um, again, I look at the things that we have been doing um, around, you know, with our P3s, um, with our Hercules, with our engineers, with our medics um, in the Pacific um, when they are hit by cyclones, etc. But at the other end of the equation, you know, you've, you've got uh, uh, vessels like our frigates, um, like um, our offshore patrol vessels, Otago and Wellington, um, like the P3 and then um, soon to be the P8. And they kind of offer a measure of deterrence at one end uh, when you know, they are part of a broader set of um, you know, perhaps coalition activities um, uh, um, operating to you know, um, whether it's some sort of coalition activity or whether it's, for instance, in the Pacific, um, spotting illegal fishing or um, other nefarious activities that you want to um, uh, make sure don't get out of hand. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, to me, it's sort of a range of capabilities um, and a range of activities that in the first instance mean People with untoward agendas perhaps don't see this as an easy place to operate. And in fact, um, as we speak, we have the Queen, um, HMS Queen Elizabeth and the Carrier Strike Group um, heading into the Asia Pacific uh, with a grouping of different countries contributing um, ships uh, to the group. Um, and of course, we're in conversation with, with, with New Zealand about how New Zealand might get involved with that as well. Uh, no, look, just a couple of things. I think, firstly, New Zealand welcomes the UK's intention to tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. It's really, really important. You you have a lot of history in this area. You've got a lot of understanding in this area, and that's that's important. Um, and it's important to have like-minded partners um, working in unison. And again, um, acknowledge the uh, invitation to be involved in that um, carrier strike group activity. And I know our ministers indicated we're very keen to be involved. And at the moment, we're just working out the details as to how we will be involved. But um, look, that that will be that will be an exciting um, an exciting event this year. There's no doubt about that. Andrew, when we um, first met in your offices, um, you, you told me that, you, that when you were a child, you used to write um, letters to famous people asking for their autographs, and you showed me quite a few of them. What was it that inspired you to do that? I can't remember, actually. I just thought it would be um, fun. Uh, I, I, it's probably a really nerdy thing to admit, but... Um, uh, all my life, I've just really been interested in um, uh, world events. Um, I've, I've read the newspaper for as long as I can remember. And I think one day, probably about the age of 10 or 11, I think I just woke up with an idea that um, 
I would write, uh, uh, initially my first letter actually was to the Queen and for her signature, and much to my surprise, um, she didn't write a personal note back to me, um, oh. and and I didn't get and I didn't get her signature. But I know that Laura, you you will sort that out for me. Um, uh, but um, but I, I did end up getting Margaret Thatcher's signature uh, and a few other notables as well from from the UK. So I, I wasn't left uh, empty-handed. Yeah. Lovely, lovely. And, and, and just to, to close off, I mean, assuming, of course, that you're not still an autograph hunter and that's not how you spend your free time, what do you do nowadays uh, to relax and, and switch off from the worries of the world? Annette and I, we have two um, teenage kids and they're, 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 they're lovely teenagers. So spending time with them is a real priority. Um, and, uh, you know, really enjoy reading uh, and, and, um, and movies uh, and getting out for um, uh, exercise each morning with our, um, uh, our dog, who unfortunately needs a lot of exercise, which is probably better for me than it is for the dog. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah, just a, just a mixture of very very simple activities. Um, switching off is really really important, and I think taking time out is really important. And in the roles that you and I have, absolutely, and just just focusing on on normal life and and and, and do as much as possible. Sometimes leaving work behind us. Well, thank you very absolutely. much. It's been, it's been a pleasure to talk. Thank you, Andrew, um, for your time, and um, look forward to seeing you again soon. Look, thank you very much, Laura, and thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciated uh, being with you here today. Thanks a lot. Kia ora. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.